Paul from Two Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College. College for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, March 24th, we are studying John chapter 16, verse 4b through verse 15. In today's text, Jesus tells his disciples it is to their advantage that he goes away, for then he will send the Holy Spirit to them as their helper. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you again. So we get started today, Pastor Vandercook. Help us with some context. We're in John 16 today. What should we know about the Gospel of John and what Jesus has been doing and saying around the text we've got for today? Yeah, this entire chapter of John, and really this entire few chapters of John, is all occurring while Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. The same night on which he was betrayed, uh, in which he celebrated the Passover with them, celebrating his Last Supper with them. Um, so a lot of this happens, or in fact, all of this happens on uh, what we call today Monday Thursday, uh, this very long discourse uh, that is going on. And so in the chapters that lead up to chapter 16, in chapter 14, Jesus promises that he's not going to leave the disciples as orphans, but that he will send them the Holy Spirit. And then in uh, chapter 15, and then also kind of leading into our verses for today, Jesus is imploring his disciples to love one another as he has loved them, uh, and also indicates that the world will hate them just as they hated him. And uh, the Holy Spirit is given then as a comfort to remind them of the promises that they have in Christ. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is, uh, I suppose, the remedy, uh, you could say, for uh, the troubles that will come upon the apostles as they are, well, the disciples at this point, but they will be the apostles that are sent out by Christ after his um, crucifixion, uh, death, resurrection, and ascension. You and I were talking before we started recording that this text shows up in the church here in a couple of spots, and I, th I know you use the one-year lectionary in your parishes. How does Where does this text show up? How does that help us to understand perhaps the, the way to approach it as Christians? Yes, in the one-year lectionary, this is the gospel reading for the fifth Sunday of Easter, Cantate Sunday, and it prepares us really for Pentecost because it speaks of how the Holy Spirit will be given, what the purpose of the giving of the Holy Spirit will be at Pentecost, what role the Holy Spirit is going to play in the life of the church. Well, I guess I should say the role of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the uh, apostles and then in the um, and then also in the, uh, of course, in the life of the church after that. So it is very much a, a used as a preparatory text for uh, the approach of both the Ascension, uh, but of course, probably more specifically, Pentecost. Hmm. 
So within the life of the church, that is where we hear it. I think in the we were also saying in the three-year lectionary, it shows up on the day of Pentecost, one of the years. So we certainly hear it in those contexts as Christians today. The apostles first heard it on Monday, Thursday, as you said, preparing them not only for the time of Jesus' passion and death, very quickly coming at this point, but also preparing them for the ministry that Jesus would give them after he had ascended into heaven. So we have John 16, beginning at verse 4b today. Here is the text. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is our text for today. That is John 16, verse 4b through verse 15. Pastor Vandercook, Jesus starts in our text, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. What is Jesus talking about in that part of verse 4? Well, he's referring back to the verses that came right before that, where he talks about how the world is going to hate the apostles. They're going to hate you, Jesus says, just like they hated me. So those are the things he's referring to, is the fact that he's kind of warning them of the persecution that is to come. These are the things you're going to face as you're proclaiming uh, the gospel to these people. Of course, one would think that uh, here are the disciples proclaiming the good news of salvation. Shouldn't people be welcoming that word? Uh, Well, of course, that's not what happens, and that's not how the world tends to receive the gospel. The world instead uh, is an enemy of the gospel, Uh, And so Jesus now says these things, these are the things he's referring to, uh, to prepare them for what is to come. Hmm. Within this verse, you know, Jesus says, I haven't been telling you this until now because I was with you. He's going to take that brunt of the persecution himself. But when he ascends, it will fall upon these men as the, the apostles. With the, with the way that Jesus does this, that he, you know, he, he teaches things in an order. There, there's a time for him to teach some things, and now comes a time for him to teach more things. Is there, I don't know, is, is there some wisdom there for, for the church still and for pastors in terms of there's a, there's a time and place for certain teachings, and then when maybe a situation changes, we, we think about another teaching or we, we go to, we a- emphasize a different aspect of the doctrine. Is there, it sounds like there's some wisdom there for us still. Yeah, you know, at first glance, uh, you know, I suppose one could read this crassly and say, you know, Jesus is pulling a bait and switch on the disciple or something, you know, that, uh, that oh, I was hiding all this stuff from you because, trust me, you didn't want to know about it back then. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I really do think that it's best to look at it just as you said, that 
whenever Jesus is on earth, um, yeah, the disciples are going to suffer perhaps a little bit. And you do see this during Holy Week, I suppose, that uh, the disciples are, are fearing uh, persecution. So they all fall away from Christ. You know, whenever he's arrested, they all run away. Um, but uh, in general, the disciples, well, and I suppose you could look at whenever uh, Peter's there in the courtyard too, that, uh, you know, they're, you know, why does he deny knowing Jesus? Well, he's fearing what's going to happen if they, if they find out that he was one of the disciples of Christ, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, if, if Jesus is going to lead off with uh, hey, you guys want to come follow me? By the way, the world's going to hate you and chase you out of the synagogue. Um, uh, that probably wouldn't go over too well. Um, and, you know, he he probably would not have had, he may not have had the same type of success in calling the disciples to himself. Uh, you know, so there is, there is some wisdom there that um, by the time that they are invested in the Christ and in his teaching, uh, that is part of what is going to prepare them for facing this persecution. So, uh, and and they're not going to have Jesus around after he ascends into heaven. They aren't going to have Jesus around to suffer the brunt of that persecution anymore. Uh, they're going to be, I guess you could say, somewhat on their own, uh, even though, I mean, that, that obviously leads us into what Jesus is going to do for them. So they aren't on their own, uh, but nonetheless, they will not have Christ among them to be the one who's kind of suffering the uh, the persecution uh, instead of them. Right. And, and yeah, as you said, he's not actually leaving them alone. You mentioned in the context, he's already told them he's not going to leave them as orphans. And within our text today, he's going to say what perhaps is surprising to us, that it's actually to their advantage that he goes so that he sends the helper. So certainly they're, they are not alone. I suppose it, just the way that Jesus speaks there, it, it strikes me that it, it's not like he's hidden this from them per se, I mean, he's talked about carrying a cross, you know, whoever would be my disciple must pick up his cross daily and follow me. We know he says that from the Synoptic Gospels within the course of his ministry. Yet at the same time here, at this moment where he knows he is on the cusp of his suffering and death and his apostles are going to see it, and, and now he's, you know, he's giving them that which he would, I think, would think they need the most— this is what he he gives them now. And in that sense, we talked a little bit about this in previous episodes. This is a, a farewell discourse of sorts. This is what Jesus knows they need to hear right now. And so maybe he hasn't emphasized it as much previously, but they need to hear it right now because it will provide strength, not only as they face his passion and death, but as we've been saying, later after he ascends, this will be a source of strength for them. Yeah, that's right. And and again, yeah, if he had if he had again, you know, warned the disciples about persecution in the very beginning when he was with them, that wouldn't have really served a purpose. So I think that's really is a helpful way to think about it that he is teaching them what they need to know for now uh because they didn't really need this information until now. And I guess I I'm just and I suppose this isn't this isn't the point of the text. But just thinking about it in the life of the church and in the the work of a pastor, that there there is a time and place to give people teaching, and you don't have to dump it all on them at once. I guess if that makes sense. And I suppose the way that we generally do this as Lutherans is, you know, we we look to the basics, the to the small catechism, and start with that rather than trying to give absolutely everything all at once. Again, I know that's not the point of this text, but there seems some wisdom 
that Jesus uses in the course of his teaching that's worth our attention in the church still. Oh, yeah, I think that applies to a lot of different contemporary situations that we could encounter. You know, it, obviously, it's going to vary by the by the person that we run into. But, you know, if somebody is um, is is living in a certain way that we look at and we can right away say, you know, hey, this is uh, that is contrary to the word of God. You know, they're living some type of sinful lifestyle. Uh, well, if depending on their familiarity with the word of God, they may have no idea that what they're doing is wrong at all. Uh, and so, yeah, you 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 may you may need to get them to that point. Um, whenever you are are dealing with people, uh, get them to the point where now there's going to be some receptivity to uh, the Lord's instruction. Mm. So Jesus gives his disciples the teaching they need at this moment because he has been them been with them. But now, as he says in verse five, he's going to him who sent me. None of you asks me where are you going. Uh, what is Jesus saying there in verse 5? Does he want them to ask this? Why aren't they asking? Well, yeah, and I, th- I think just real quick, if I could talk about for a moment this idea of going to him who sent me, uh, sure. you know, I think this is kind of the the tension that's always there. Uh, even even whenever we have this come up in the lectionary every year in the in the one-year lectionary, this idea of, you know, whenever Jesus talks about going away in this section of John, is he talking about his crucifixion? Is he talking about his, you know, is he talking about his arrest and his crucifixion, all of that kind of stuff? Is he talking about his death? Or is he talking about his ascension? And I think every time I come to it every year, I, I kind of come to the conclusion is the answer is kind of yes. You know, it's it's kind of all of the above. And so when we have him saying that he is going to him who sent me, well, on the one hand, you can say that he's going to the Father in his death on the cross because he is presenting himself as the sacrifice that is needed for our sin. So he's presenting himself as that sacrifice to his Father, suffering uh, his Father's wrath mm-hmm. on our behalf. Uh, but then, of course, there's also perhaps the more obvious thing here is where he's saying that I am going to ascend into heaven and then you will face that persecution. So there's kind of this... Mm-hmm. This, this twofold, where is Jesus going? And perhaps if they had asked that question, you know, we would have, a, we would have the absolute, exactly what is Jesus talking about here? Uh, but, but the fact that they don't ask that question um, kind of leaves it open. And I think it's probably good that it's open. Hmm. Well, now with this, you know, none of you asks me, where are you going? It seems like Thomas asked something pretty similar, maybe exactly that back in chapter 14. Yeah, he asked, uh, you know, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way, right? Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, back then, or back whenever, back then, uh, earlier in the evening, it's right. probably yeah. only like 20 minutes earlier, um, if that. <laughs> but uh, when Thomas asked that question, I think the answer that Thomas and probably the rest of the disciples were expecting was, uh, oh, are, you know, like a spot on a map, you know? Where are you going? We'll go with you there, you know, Jesus. We want to go too, you know. Um, but, uh, but you know, so there's there's kind of a lack of understanding there, which is kind of a theme whenever you go throughout uh, Holy Week, and even after the resurrection to some extent. Uh, but, uh, you know, why is nobody asking this at this point? Uh, quite frankly, he's kind of dropped some heavy stuff on them just now, you know. Yeah. This whole idea that they he's they're going to face persecution, you know, they're going to be put out of the synagogues, uh, just like the world hated Jesus, they're going to hate the disciples, and so they might just kind of be so dumbfounded at that point that they don't even know what to say to Jesus, and so uh, you know they're 
They're not going to ask the question, maybe because they're afraid of the answer. Yeah, and I think the way that Jesus continues into verse 6 gives some insight into that, that they're not asking because the things that Jesus has said are filling their hearts with sorrow. So it's, I think it seems reasonable to think that it is that that sorrow within their hearts that, as you said, they just don't know what to ask or how to ask because they are sad at the things that Jesus is saying. Talk about this sorrow that Jesus says is filling their hearts. Yeah, again, there's kind of multiple different things when it comes to sorrow. Obviously, you know, the 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 mood of uh, late Maundy Thursday into Good Friday is a somber mood. Um, it is sadness over the fact that Christ, their leader, uh, their rabbi has been arrested. Uh, he's being put on trial. There doesn't seem to be, there's not anything that they can do about it. And ultimately he ends up dying. So obviously that's going to be a source of sorrow. But then there's also the sorrow that's going to come with his uh, his his big time departure, his ascension, because while of course the ascension is a glorious thing, um, it's, a, it's a glorious day in the church here for us even today, obviously, a very high feast day for us. Um, but the, uh, for the disciples, hey, they're used to having Jesus around all the time, and he's not going to be around anymore. So there's the, there's the sorrow that is there as well. So it's kind of a twofold sorrow. Um, but then also on top of that, he's told them what's going to happen to them after he leaves. And so there's probably a little bit of sorrow or somberness, maybe even, uh, you know, you could use that word as well, um, uh, soberness maybe, just realizing, oh my goodness, what is going to happen to us uh, once yeah. Jesus is gone? Mm. Well, in, in, in that sense, with the sorrow that would be in their hearts, knowing that they'll be cast out of the synagogues and the persecution that will happen to them, Perhaps part of the reason they're not asking Jesus, where are you going, is because they are thinking more about what's going to happen to them rather than what Jesus is about to do. And that maybe that's part of the reason they're not asking as well, but all attached to this multifaceted sorrow that the disciples are feeling because of what Jesus has said to them. In verse 7, then, Jesus turns and, and says what I think might be rather surprising still to us, and I, I would imagine rather probably to the disciples, very surprising. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Talk about this surprising news from Jesus that it's actually to their advantage that he go. Well, obviously you can see how it would be, at least in the disciples' mind, advantageous if Jesus would not go away. I mean, there's the obvious thing of the fact that they love Jesus. They want to have him among them. They want to continue learning from him. Uh, you know, so there's there's that thing. But then there's also the fact that, well, you just told us that after you go away, uh, all this bad stuff's going to happen to us. And so why don't you just stick around so none of that bad stuff happens to us? You know, that might be a nice thing, too. Uh, but... Uh, but here Jesus does tell them it's to their advantage that he go away, because if he doesn't go away, then the Holy Spirit's not going to come. Uh, and the way that I tend to look at this is that, uh, you know, the same way that we look at um, the means of grace, you know, uh, the preaching of the word and the holy sacraments, that um, without the preaching of the word, without the holy sacraments, um, we don't come to faith. Um, rather, 
the historic event of the resurrection of Christ happened, but it doesn't really mean anything unless that word actually reaches us. Uh, and so, you know, in order for that word to reach us, Jesus has to go away. Why? Because in order for that word to reach us, the Holy Spirit has to do his work. And the Holy Spirit can't do his work if the Holy Spirit is never sent. And the Holy Spirit's not going to be sent because Jesus says that's not going to happen unless I leave. Hmm. Well, and with Jesus saying it's to your advantage that I go away, when he refers to his going away, do you think that that's that similar thing like you were talking about earlier in terms of going to him who sent me, that this going away maybe doesn't only have in view the ascension, but also what he's about to do in his, his death and of course his resurrection too, that part of his going away being to their advantage is the, the work that he will do in his glorification in passion and death and then resurrection that too is there to their advantage. And I guess the, the reason I, I want to think about it that way too, is because of what, we will see happen in John chapter 20 after Jesus has gone away into his death and then comes back in his resurrection. When he appears to the, the disciples in that locked room, he breathes on them and he gives them the Holy spirit already, even before Pentecost. So it seems that his going away here is more than just his ascension. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that out. I think that's absolutely uh, important to consider as well. Yeah. That, that it's it's to your advantage that I go away. Just the simple fact that if we think back to Jesus, again, presenting himself as a sacrifice to the Father, this is obviously for the advantage of the disciples and for everybody else. I think that's fantastic, yeah. So well, with that in mind then, and as you were talking earlier with the sorrow that fills their heart on this Monday, Thursday in the upper room, knowing what's about to happen to their master— is there, and Jesus says, but wait, it's to your advantage. Do, do these words of Jesus perhaps have a have an effect on the way that we would approach our worship services on Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, that they aren't, well, they're, they're not simply for us to to feel really sad. There is a sorrow, I think, on in both of those services. And it's not that we would have a sort of like happy, happy, go lucky sort of view of those services, but there's a um, a confidence maybe would be the right word that, that we would have at those Holy Week services because of the way Jesus speaks here. Oh, yeah, I think so. And and I think probably the sorrow that we have at uh, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, um, you know, I think if we redirect that a little bit to focus on the fact that the reason that we're sorrowful is not just the idea that, you know, in other words, it's not like we're going to um, we're not, it's not like we're going to a funeral for Jesus or something like that. Mm. Um, it is indeed, we do have Jesus, the son of God, God himself dying on the cross for us. Uh, and that is a sorrowful thing, but the reason why it's sorrowful, I guess you could say is because it's necessary in the first place. And so we're looking at again, and of course that's what Lent is all about as we approach the cross is that uh, consideration of our own sinfulness uh, that has necessitated the the sacrifice of Christ in the first place. And so that sorrow then becomes a little bit different than the typical, we're sad over somebody that's about to die. You know, it's, it's more of the sorrow that uh, the reason that this person has to die is because of uh, the, uh, because of my sin. 
Well, and, and when the sorrow is more over my sin, what the hymn Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted talks about that, I think, very well. The And I, I can't think of the line exactly now, but the when you look at, oh, ye who think of sin but lightly, or suppose the sorrow great, here may view its nature rightly. So, you know, when we think about the sorrow of Good Friday and Monday, Thursday as well, as one of over our sin, then that does enable us to to more confidently say that this is, in fact, Good Friday, that this is not Jesus going as a, a helpless victim in the sense that that he is, you know, going unwillingly, but rather he goes as the, the glorified victim, the one who lays down his life on behalf of us sinners, though my sins caused him to go there, and that is a sorrowful thing, there's also a joy and a confidence to see Jesus take that upon himself willingly, and because I know that that is, in fact, to my advantage as a sinner, then there's a, again, it's not a, a, a happiness, but there's a, a confidence, a, a joy, a comfort that's ours on, on those, in those services. Yeah, and that's expressed really well in our hymnody. I'm glad you brought that out. Another hymn that came to my mind was Sing My Tongue, The Glorious Battle, which is very much a triumphal hymn that is used, I mean, it's a Holy Week hymn, it's a Good Friday hymn, um, but it, you know, sing my tongue, the glorious battle, sing the ending of the fray, you know, just this idea that, uh, this is, this is a triumphal moment because Christ in his death is crushing the head of the serpent, uh, for us. And so, yeah, it definitely does change the focus of, uh, of how we look at, uh, Good Friday. Mm, that's right. So it is to our advantage that Jesus goes away to his death and his resurrection. As you said, it's also to the disciples' advantage that he goes away in his ascension so that then he will send the helper who will work through the means of grace to bring us to faith in him. We're going to talk more about that work of the helper, the Holy Spirit, on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor David Vandercook this morning about John chapter 16. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 24th. We're studying John chapter 16, verse 4b through verse 15 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' words when he tells his disciples that it is to their advantage that he goes away. And we connected that to his death and resurrection. And you also have connected it to his ascension. Talk more about how that is to the disciples' advantage, both then and now, that Jesus has ascended. What's the advantage to not being able to see him like the disciples saw him on the night when he spoke John 16? When Jesus is on the earth with his disciples, he can only be where he is. That is, 
where you see him in that one place, that's where Jesus can be. He is confined to that location. Now, of course, after the resurrection, we see that he's able to, for lack of a better term, teleport uh, from one place to another uh, as he, you know, he's there with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, and then in the break, after he breaks the bread and they recognize him, he disappears. And then the next thing you know, he's there with the disciples in the upper room. But he's not both places at the same time. Well, now today in the church, every Sunday, we've got churches across the world all celebrating the Lord's Supper all at once. And Christ's body and blood is there on altars all across the world, all at the same time. How is it possible that Jesus can be all these different places at once? And the answer is because he's ascended into heaven, because in his, in his, um, in his glorified state, after he's ascended into heaven, Jesus can do that because he's true God. He's no longer confined to just this one place, but he can be everywhere. I mean, the ascension is so key for this. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's another sense, obviously, that, that it is very much to our advantage that uh, Jesus is ascended, uh, because otherwise, whenever we're talking about, well, I, well, I mean, it kind of boggles the mind to think about what would it be like if Jesus hadn't ascended into heaven? I guess we'd all have to wait around until Jesus, it was our turn to have Jesus with us, you know. Uh, but the fact is that now that he has ascended into heaven, now he can be here and he can be, you know, he can be at, at my church in Arkansas. I can be at your church in Illinois. He can be at uh, at all these Christian altars all across the world, all at the same time. Yeah, so he has not removed his presence in the ascension, but he has transformed it so that he is, in fact, present in those places he has promised to be present for us and for our salvation. He also says here that it is to their advantage that he goes away because he's going to then send the helper to them. And we know that this is the Holy Spirit. Talk briefly about the title that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit here. He calls him the helper as the ESV translates it. I think this is the word paraclete in the Greek. Talk a little bit about that title for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, if you think about what he's, what, you know, in context, what he's just talked to the disciples about, um, you, know, you know, we referred earlier to chapter 14 where he says that he's not going to leave the disciples as orphans. Um, and then we talk about the persecution that they're going to face in chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16. And the, um, the fact is the disciples need help. They need, um, uh, helper. Sometimes it's, a you see the Holy Spirit referred to as a comforter also. And I think both those things are kind of true at once in this. The disciples need help. They need comfort. Uh, that's what they need him for. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, provides that for them. And the way that he provides that for them, he's going to flesh out uh, even more as he goes forward here. All right. So as Jesus goes forward, then the way that he describes the work of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse eight, he summarizes. So when he, that is the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That verse serves as a summary. And then Jesus goes on to elaborate each of those. So we'll take them in order. Jesus says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. I, I suppose, Pastor Vanderkirk, maybe we need to talk a little bit at first about what it means the Holy Spirit will convict the world, and then how he will do that specifically concerning each of these in turn, so starting with sin. Well, to, you know, to convict the world, uh, you know, pronounce it in this case, at least when you're talking about convicting the world concerning sin, we're talking about uh, basically pronouncing judgment upon the world. Mm. Um, and 
in this case, the judgment that is being rendered by the Holy Spirit is a judgment of guilty, uh, convicting them concerning sin. And, you know, as Jesus says, because they do not believe in me. Ultimately, that's what all sin kind of boils down to is a lack of fear, love and trust in God. Uh, you know, a first commandment type thing. All sins eventually end up back being a violation of the first commandment. And so this is an example of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the law to bring about repentance. Uh, and of course, we need the law. We need the law. Um, uh, you know, we can talk about the three uses of the law, I suppose. But here we're talking about the the law uh, serving as a mirror to convict us of our sin because it shows us that we have need of Christ. Uh, so, I mean, it's very important the Holy Spirit come to convict the world concerning sin, because if we don't know that we have sinned, then we have no need for a Savior in the first place. I suppose with the, the way that Jesus speaks here concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and as, as you were saying, that it is this is all about unbelief. That is the, the central thing that Jesus is talking about. Just thinking through the, the law as a mirror, and the way that our catechism explains each of the commandments, in each one, the explanation starts, we should fear and love God. Well, in commandments two through 10, they start that way, connecting us back to the first commandment, which teaches us to fear, love, and trust in God above all things, so that each commandment, I mean, ultimately, it does come back to this matter of faith or unbelief. Faith fulfills, but unbelief, that's the that is the breaking of, of all the commandments. Right. Yeah. And that and, and it's good that you point that out. That is the common thread that is that is running throughout the whole thing, that uh that all of it eventually ends up back at idolatry. Hmm. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Then in verse 10, Jesus continues, so the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What is Jesus telling us there about the work of the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, here, the to convict the world of righteousness, I think it's, uh, you know, it seems weird to convict somebody of righteousness. Uh, just in, in our way of talking, we don't usually, it sounds like you're guilty of something. Well, I'm guilty of being righteous. Well, can you be guilty of doing good things, you know? Uh, that's that's a strange way to think about it. But I think, again, if we think about this as rendering a judgment, uh, rendering a verdict in this case, well, the world is, um, after the world has been convicted of sin, been made aware of the need for Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to work through the preaching of the gospel, uh, the proclamation of the gospel to bring about salvation. And here this points out, Again, because I go to the Father, we return to this idea of going to the Father. What does it mean to go to the Father? And I think, again, you can look at this two different ways again. Uh, you know, Jesus goes to the Father when he goes to the cross to die. And in that sense, he is, um, he is uh, achieving righteousness. That is the righteousness of God. And this is the, the righteousness that he wins for us by uh, offering himself as a sacrifice for all sin. And then we are credited with that righteousness, um, uh, you know, through the gospel, uh, through the word and through the sacraments. And then uh, also, uh, you know, he goes to the Father in that he uh, goes to be at the right hand of the Father, and there he intercedes for us. 
you know, reminding, serving as sort of like our defense attorney, uh, reminding the father, uh, you know, that I have died for the sins of that wor- uh, of whoever it is. I've died for the sins of the world. I've paid the price for that sin and that sin and that sin. Uh, so, you know, this is this is the way to look at that, I believe, is that uh, we have the Holy Spirit here working through the proclamation of the gospel. So maybe could I could we say it like this that the Holy Spirit con- convicts the world concerning righteousness because the world through the preaching of both law and gospel sees that its own righteousness the righteousness of the law the righteousness of our own works is ultimately nothing and the only righteousness that avails is the one that belongs to Christ who has gone to the Father in the ways that you've said and we see him no longer but he comes through the means of grace, even though we don't see him, that that ultimately that's the only righteousness that will avail. And so you either cling to that righteousness or you, you go back, I guess, supposed to the, to the beginning and you're in unbelief. Right. Yeah. And and yeah, that's that's helpful, too, I think, to look at that way. You're right. Our righteousness is is filthy rags, but the righteousness of Christ is the righteousness that um, that brings about salvation. So the Holy Spirit. First, has convicted the world concerning sin, because they do not believe. Second, concerning righteousness, because Jesus goes to the Father, and you will see him no longer, so he has won the only righteousness that avails. And then finally, the third thing Jesus says, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What is Jesus saying about the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 11? Well, on account of Christ, the sinner is judged as righteous. Not because the sinner is righteous, but because Christ is righteous, and uh, the righteousness of Christ covers over the sins of of the believer. Um, But then at the same time, the devil, the ruler of the world, he is the one who is judged, Uh, the ruler of the world there being uh, Satan. So Satan can no longer accuse us because we've been declared righteous in Christ Jesus. Uh, So he, uh, you know, uh, sin disturbed my soul no longer. I am baptized into Christ. You know, um, the Satan has to drop his ugly, ugly accusation because he can't accuse us of anything because uh, the Holy Spirit has already counted us righteous on account of Christ. And so, again, with kind of trying to tie these things together, then for the Holy Spirit to convict concerning judgment, there is there is no hope to be found in the ruler of this world or the things of this world. Those things have been cast aside. They have been overcome by Christ, who has gone to the Father, again, tying that together, so that if if the world will turn from its allegiance to the world and to sin, then there is salvation, there is righteousness. But if not, then again, you're kind of, you're stuck in that unbelief of the first part. Right, yes. <laughs> All right, so the Holy Spirit, the work of the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus describes there in those three ways to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then Jesus continues in verse 12, and he does continue to speak about the work of the Holy Spirit. Take us into to verse 12. I have I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. What's he talking about there? Yeah, um, he still has many things to say. I think in its immediate context, obviously, we we know that Christ, uh, after he um, after he dies, after he rises from the dead, he's going to spend forty days uh, catechizing his disciples further. Uh, so I, that's probably the best way to look at what he means by that he will have uh, many more things to teach his disciples. 
I suppose by extension, you could say also that uh, he will have many more things to say through the Holy Spirit uh, even after his ascension. But uh, primarily, I think it's probably most helpful to look at this as uh, he's talking about how after he rises from the dead, he's going to teach them more. Okay, so for example, like in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus on the road to Emmaus, you mentioned this earlier, he, he d- spends that whole walk you know, telling the disciples, those two of them, that he had to die and rise according to the Old Testament. Or later in that same chapter, he opens the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, and he shows them how the law, the the prophets, and the Psalms all are about his own death and resurrection. Those are the things that he needs to tell them now. I suppose within the Gospel of John, we, we've seen references to this in other places. I'm thinking back to chapter 2, where John says, he was talking there when he was talking about the temple. He was talking about the temple of his body, but the disciples didn't get it until after the resurrection. Those are the kinds of things we we should have in mind here. Yeah, I think so, right. Because, uh, yeah, as he says there, you cannot bear them now. They're, they won't make sense to you right now. And so after he rises from the dead, then they will, uh, all the things that he said is, are going to make sense. Um, you know, they, they don't understand the significance of his death and resurrection until after he rises from the dead and he's able to kind of put the pieces together for them. Um, and to some extent, uh, you know, even after he rises from the dead, you still have some of the disciples, it's at his ascension that some of them still doubt even then, you know, so there's just that, that further work of the Holy Spirit to continue to bring clarity to the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the disciples and for the whole church. Well, so Jesus then goes back to the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in verse 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Talk about the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus explains there. Yeah, probably in our world, the most common interpretation, or not interpretation, but I suppose the most common assumption about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit has to do with things that are exciting. Uh, you know, people will exit a worship service, and if uh, they're they're excited as they're leaving, that means that the Spirit was really moving there. Uh, if they aren't, then that means the Holy Spirit wasn't really moving there. Uh, but when Jesus here talks about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit, there's not really much to do with uh, the emotion of excitement. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't have perhaps excitement by the fact that, I mean, we should be excited on some level, I suppose, that, uh, you know, Christ has died for us, that because of his death and resurrection, we have uh, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. I mean, obviously, that's a beautiful thing. But, um, but it's also a very concrete thing. And so the Holy Spirit is is about pointing back to the concrete things that Jesus has done. He's not going to create doctrine on his own. He's not going to create new doctrine, but rather his work is constantly to point back to Christ and what he has done. Uh, and so, you know, he is, um, I think every time I teach this, uh, teach the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in uh uh, to kids in, in confirmation classes and in first communion classes, I talk about the fact that, um, you know, I, I usually talk about Amazon now. I used to talk about other stuff, but I'll, I'll say, you know, when you order something on Amazon, 
it already exists. It's in a warehouse, and we have a couple of huge Amazon warehouses here in the Little Rock area. It's in a warehouse over there. The thing that you want, the thing that you've ordered, it exists, but it's not at it's not in your house yet. You have to wait until it comes, the delivery man brings it. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit's job is to take that which has already been won, it already exists, the forgiveness of sins, all of the all that ever needs to be paid for the forgiveness of sins has already been won by Christ. Uh, there is an endless supply of it, but now it needs to get to you. And that's what the Holy Spirit's work is to do. It's to remind you what Christ has done and bring the gifts that are that have been won by Christ to you right now in whatever place you're at. So I, I think this is important in our context in you know in the midst of American Christianity, what you're saying about the work of the Spirit, that he's not going to give you something new. He's going to, at least in the sense that it, Jesus didn't say it, right? He's going to give you what Jesus has already given. I I think I've I've heard this and I I'm not positive, but I, I think I associate it with the United Church of Christ, things like God is still speaking, or things like uh, something like don't put a don't put a period where God has put a comma. And and I wonder if they would look at a verse like this, for example, where Jesus says, He will declare to you the things that are to come, and try to use this as perhaps justification for thinking there's more revelation to come and the Holy Spirit's gonna give that, as you said, usually in something that maybe makes me feel good or, or somehow uplifts my my feelings, but that's not what, that's not the meaning of this verse, right? Yeah, no, that that's right. Yeah, and I and I know exactly what you're talking about, because I remember they, uh, I don't know if they're still doing it, but there, whenever I was at the seminary, there was a, uh, a UCC church that was down the street from where we lived, and it had, it had a banner that said exactly, exactly what you just said. Don't put a period where God has put a comma. But here, what you have is the Holy Spirit actually pointing back to, you know, what did what did Jesus say? Last words from the cross. It is finished with a period at the end, you know. Uh, and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit's actually pointing back to is he's saying, look, it's already done, you know. So. That's right. Yeah, when when I when I talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and, and teach it both to to youth and adults, I like, and I, I like to think about the word, uh, or I like to talk to them about the word spiritual, and it, it's a, a common thing, I think, still in our day and age, to say some, to hear someone say something like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And, and my, my question to that is always, well, what kind of spirit are you talking about? If, you, if you're talking about the Holy Spirit, if it's that kind of spiritual, I like to, to put a, a dash in the word there to kind of, so that we would connect in our minds, if we want to know if something really is truly spiritual in the Christian sense, then we need to be looking, is this proclaiming to me Christ and him crucified? If so, then yes, that is truly spiritual. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. If not, it might still be spiritual, but it's not the same spirit. And I think that's, again, in, in our context of American Christianity, I think that's a distinction that we really need to make sure we have straight. Yeah, right. If we're going to call something spiritual, we have to remember the the tight connection between uh, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Uh, and so we test those spirits to see if, hey, what is this 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 spirit thing that I am saying is spiritual? Is it uh, is it the Word of God or is it not? If it's not the Word of God, then it's not actually coming from the Holy Spirit. That's a different spirit. 
That's right. So again, from verse 13, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promises him, will guide the disciples into all truth, not speaking on his own authority, but hearing the words of Jesus and speaking those things. That then in verse 14, and I think this just only adds to what we're saying, he will glorify me. Again, the Holy Spirit's work is to glorify Jesus. Help us into the way Jesus teaches that in verse 14 of the text. Yeah, again, uh, the work of the Spirit is to work through the means of grace and to uh, go back to what, uh, again, Christ has done. He is the the one who is, uh, I suppose, you know, giving life to what, uh, to the words of Christ, um, because uh, as I said, you know, earlier, if Christ dies on the cross and is raised from the dead, those are historical facts. They happened, um, but they don't become a reality for us unless those gifts are delivered here and now. Well, so this would be, and perhaps you've heard a Lutheran pastor say this before, I know I've said it before, that this would be the for you of the gospel. All of the things that we confess in the creed are wonderful, they are true, but the the for you, is that's, that's the gospel. It's not just something that happened once upon a time in history, and that's nice, but actually it's for you. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, is to, to take what was done and bring it to you for you now, today, in the present. Yeah, amen. I agree. All right, so the for you of the gospel, Jesus is is proclaiming that to his disciples in this text. Then help us into the the last verse of our text. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is Jesus saying there? Yeah, well, again, this, this would be obviously an attestation to the Holy Trinity here, that we don't have three gods, but we have one God. Uh, and all three persons of the Trinity are are necessary and active in this case, in that uh, Christ himself is a revelation of God. Um, he is uh, God in the flesh, um, but his authority comes from the Father. And likewise, the Holy Spirit's authority is derived from the Father and the Son, you know, as we confess in the Creed, um, that he uh, proceeded from the Father and the Son, uh, and so, yeah, there's there's just the, the unity of the Trinity, I think, is expressed well there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it is remarkable to see the the Trinitarian nature of Jesus' teaching here. And just briefly, I know this hasn't been a, a huge part of our conversation, but I, I, it's probably worth mentioning, you even quoted from the Nicene Creed there, that we confess that Jesus proceeds from the Father and the Son, that and the Son is is contested among some Christians in the in the Eastern Orthodox churches. They would not say that. But these texts from John 15, 16, that's where we would understand that, yes, the Holy Spirit does proceed from the Father and the Son, right? Well, yeah, and I think you could also throw in John 20, where Jesus breathes out the, the Holy Spirit on his disciples, where it seems like it's quite literally proceeding from the mouth of Christ there. Right, right. So from, from these texts, we do see the truth of what we confess in the Nicene Creed, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, we got about two minutes here, Pastor Vandercook. Help us to, and we've kind of been doing this all along, but just to, to make it plain here at the end, help us to connect what we've been talking about to the, the small catechism. Where do, we, where do we confess the truths that are taught in this text in the small catechism? I think the most obvious place is the third article, the Apostles' Creed. And I've heard the third article described, I don't remember who, who did this, I think it was in a presentation I was at somewhere, that you have kind of the the Holy Spirit's junk drawer, if you will, in the third article of the creed. 
because there's just this whole list of stuff, you know, there. And, and I remember I used to think going through the third article of the creed that was like, we had all this other stuff we wanted to say, and we're just going to tack it on to the end, you know, where it says, uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But really what you have described there is the, I mean, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the whole, uh, the Holy Christian Church, right? You know, this is the creation of the Spirit is the church. This is the place where the Spirit is working. Uh, and what is he working to do? He's working to forgive sins and to bring about everlasting life for those who have faith in Christ. So, you know, very much so in the third article here, it really describes the work of the Spirit in delivering the gifts of the cross uh, to us here and now. And then, of course, by extension, you're going to talk about uh, the um, uh, the means of grace, namely the sacraments, baptism, confession, the sacrament of the altar. These are the places that we can be certain that the Holy Spirit is at work because he's promised to work in all these things to uh, bring us, again, the forgiveness of sins, to, um, to, uh, to, to bring that which Christ has won to us, uh, to us here and now. And so truly, as Jesus says, it is to his disciples' advantage and to our advantage that he goes away into his death, his resurrection, now into his ascension, so that he sends the Holy Spirit to us to work in our lives through these means of grace, to bring us to faith, to keep us in faith unto life everlasting. Pastor David Vandercook is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. He has been helping us today to study John 16, verse 4b through verse 15. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. It was my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.